0: Hey, listeners, I have a really special treat for you today. My guest is somebody I have admired for a long time, and she's done amazing work in the field of trauma and resilience. Dr. Heather Forkey is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and division director for the Child Protection Program and Foster Child Evaluation Services of the UMass Memorial Children's Medical Center. She also serves as the medical director of Lifeline for Kids at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She received her undergraduate degree from Cornell University and medical degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. She completed her pediatric residency and chief residency at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Forkey has been the recipient of local and federal grants to address issues of children in foster care and to translate promising practices to address physical and mental health needs of children who have been traumatized. She has published and presents nationally and internationally on the topics, serves leadership roles for the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and the American Academy of Pediatrics on issues related to foster care and child trauma. She recently co-authored the book, Childhood Trauma and Resilience, a Practical Guide, now available from AAP Press. Please join me in a very warm welcome to Dr. Heather Forkey. Hey, Heather, how are you? Great. So good to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. I'm just going to dive right in. First of all, I am so excited. I have heard you speak many times and it's always I don't know, the conversation and the points you make are just so eye-opening. I mean, I remember the first time I heard you speak and it was such a huge aha. So I'm grateful that you made time for this today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Listen, I just wanted to start first off with why pediatrics and why foster care? How did you get into that? path? Sure. Well, probably like most people, it's a bit of a happy accident.
1: I was headed one place and I wound up in another place as many good journeys go. So I was lucky enough to go through medical school and love everything about all the different things that you could do. And it was found that certainly pediatrics for me was the most charming. I loved not only the patients, I loved that they generally recovered. And I loved colleagues, so happily went into pediatrics, but was really fascinated by oncology, and so picked a residency that would allow me to do oncology in the 90s. Now this is going back a little bit, and uh, was fortunate enough to wind up at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I was really interested in in being a part of that team their their oncology they were some of the first doing bone marrow transplant in children, but went into residency still with my options, kind of keeping them open, but thinking I was headed into pediatric oncology and loved every piece of it. And then wound up staying to do a chief year. And during my chief year, some of the other residents came to me and sort of asking questions about these kids who are in foster care coming to our emergency room. How do we get histories on them? How do we, who do we talk to to get more information? Who's supposed to sign consent? And Honestly, I had no idea. So we we started asking questions around the community, bringing speakers in and found that we could bring in one speaker and get one set of answers and bring in another speaker and get another set of answers. There really wasn't a clear path for doing healthcare for kids who had entered foster care, which really intrigued me. And after, as I finished my chief year, I decided I was not ready to jump into a fellowship and joined the primary care team and as I did so, the folks there said, oh, you know the most about kids in foster care. Could you take those kids into your practice? And so I sort of said, wait, I know the most and wound up caring for kids in foster care. Finding that work was incredibly interesting and rewarding and never went back to that oncology fellowship yet. Maybe I still will, but also wound up working with some of the incredible folks there around doing some starting with the, the safe place, the center that they have it chopped for child protection and foster care was just getting going while I was there. And then fortunately, I moved up to Massachusetts just at a time when um, Dr. Linda Sager was starting the foster care clinic here at UMass and kind of just continued on that path.
0: I, I love the fact that you said that happy accident. I think for a lot of people, you think you're supposed to know what you're going to do when you grow up and then stuff comes your way. And it takes a different turn. And I mean, and how glad we all are that you went into this field because there's so much work to do. So, and I think when you're talking about foster care, I think by the very virtue that kids are in foster care is traumatic. So it was a, it sounds like an eye opener. I want to talk a little bit about kind of I guess, that sort of trauma backstory. But I'm hoping that by the end of this conversation that we're going to see a lot of hope and resilience because I think that's where it's at. And right. so kind of going way back in 1998, when the Adverse Childhood Experiences study came out that Vince Felitti published, which I it was interesting because, of course, it was done in adults. It was an obesity study and he just sort of happened upon it, which is an interesting but of course, the conclusions was that kids that have had bad things happen to them, often bad things happen to them as adults when it comes to sort of health and well-being. And, and then we get, to, so, so that's been a big focus for many years is toxic stress and what it does. And then fast forward, we're looking at all the epigenetics and the chemical changes and inflammation. So let's start there. And then we're going to, move forward to where we are right now. So what can you say about how some of this is affecting children and particularly those in foster care?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to have you sort of laid out that way because certainly in my career, that's sort of how we kind of have tracked this understanding of what was going on. I remember having conversations with folks early as I was caring for kids in foster care, recognizing that our adolescents and young adults really had very similar outcomes and they were very consistent with each other, yet genetically were unrelated to each other. So wondering what is it that we're missing? What is going on that we don't understand? And and I remember having conversations saying, there's something we're just not getting. There's something obvious here. Because remember at the time, we considered foster care really, the, that you were in foster care was just something to be put into your social history. It It apparently had no bearing on your medical care, except for us to figure out how to deliver that care. And yet we really were recognizing that there was an impact. And so I, too, like the rest of the world, was largely not paying attention to that A-study when it came out, that it, it didn't seem to have relevance for us. And it wasn't until the early 2000s that a colleague of mine from psychiatry said, hey, have you really read this? And have you sort of tried to apply this to what we do? And I pulled it and I looked at it and I thought, wait a minute, yes, there's something really significant here, and started to think about what is what, how this was impacting our kids, and then I will forever remember I was directed to the Center for the Developmental Child, uh, Developmental Child from Harvard University, and they had working papers looking at various aspects of how toxic stress that which had, was a term becoming, becoming a thing, uh, would impact kids and how that was playing. And I will, people remember where they were in 9-11 and when they, where they were, I will remember forever where I was when I read these papers and suddenly realized this was it. This is what we're seeing, that what happens when kids experience trauma in, in the degree and the profound ways that happen for kids who experience the trauma that we took foster care, has impacts on the immune system, on the, the neural pathways that are rapidly developing, on the endocrine system, and ultimately on our genome, on the epigenetic areas, so that it changes us to move forward. I think the other really fascinating aha for me was that these changes were exactly what were supposed to happen so that kids could survive. And that what we were seeing and calling pathology was really an adaptation of the body to allow it to manage under adverse conditions. How wonderful that the human body has so many ways to adapt for survival. And yet there's always a constant. And so thinking about it that way was really a profound sort of really switch in terms of our understanding of how and and what we needed to do to care for kids in foster
0: care. Yeah, I remember when I kind of first stumbled over this too. I it was like a friend was like, hey, have you seen this? Because I'd been working with kids with behavioral health, mental health stuff, because it wasn't like I had some specialty training. It, if you do primary care, it's going to come your way, whether you want it to or not. Kids struggle. And as you sort of start to tease this out, and then you hear somebody, I heard Vince Valletti at a conference, and it was just like, what? And then Nadine Burke Harris. And then I heard you. I think one of the things that was a huge takeaway from the first conference I ever heard was why traumatized kids might have constipation. And it was like, what? They're they don't have time to poop. They're afraid to poop. I, I just was and sleep. And that sleep because the tiger's prowling in the room. And you know, that for me was wow. But I love that things didn't get stuck there and we didn't just throw up our hands and say, okay, when bad things happen, then bad, more bad things happen, but that there was some something else out there. And I, I heard you speak subsequently. About, we all know sort of the fight, flight, or freeze, and and we think about that a lot. But then you talked about this other response, and I love it. I love the word, but affiliate. So talk about that. And what is that other response? Yeah, so
1: this is also really important science that that wasn't ready when we first started this work, but really has become much better understood. Humans have multiple ways to respond to threat. We can freeze. We can just stand still, hoping the predator goes by and doesn't notice us, which works really well if you're a possum or a mouse. But for humans, it's pretty limited. Like We use it in certain circumstances, but we're too big. We get noticed. So not all that useful from an evolutionary standpoint. We probably would have been taken out of the June pool. Fight or flight certainly has great advantage in the moment. But if you're a child, if you're with child, if you're with children, you can't run that fast. We don't have claws. We can't hide underwater. So again, fight or flight for humans has some limited benefits. So we as humans had to evolve to have something that would be more useful to us. And what we have going for us are these big brains and each other. And what it means is that under threat, we bet we take advantage of both and through mediated through oxytocin, we actually are able to look left and right and say, Hey, are there other humans here who can help me manage this threat? And oxytocin actually improves what's called your social salience, meaning you get better at identifying, Are these people here th- that can help me? Or are these people uh, maybe want the same resources I want, or they kind of uh, want to attack me as well? Because <clears throat> thinking from an evolutionary standpoint, it would be really critical. I might, if I mistake then friend for enemy, I'm going to. I'm not going to survive. So we actually evolved to have a really good ability to sort of say, is this safe or not safe? And if it's safe, we we get really good at pulling people to us, gathering the forces, sort of saying, hey, can we manage this together? If it's unsafe, we've got some limited choices, right? Now I've got two threats. I've got the original threat and the threat of these others. And so I actually become more dysregulated because I have to fight on two fronts. And my cortisol and adrenaline all goes up higher. And so when we think about kids who are in foster care, the very people that they should be able to turn to and say, hey, can you help me deal with this threat? Are people who often for reasons related to their own mental health or substance misuse can't. And sometimes those are the people who are hurting them. And so that affiliate response, the one that's most useful, that shuts down cortisol, that allows you to deal with threat in a very efficient, protective way is lost to them. And so they get shoved over to using fight or flight preferentially and for far longer than it's intended to be used in normal circumstances.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As you talk about, honestly, I got chills for a minute there. I love that social salience. What a great way to think about that. I mean, it's stuff that we do all the time and take for granted. So you also shared another analogy and you just referred to one about sort of the freeze. I actually walked by a bunny this morning who was clearly freezing, at some point was like, nah, I'm not going to hang out, took off. But you also talked about tiger, chameleon, and iceberg. What's that about? So one of the things
1: that we do in medicine, in order for us to be able to kind of get comfortable with diagnosing things, is we get used to patterns that we see with infections, patterns with different disease processes. One of the things about trauma is that none of us were really trained to know what we're looking for. And an author, not me, Dr. Balin has come up with the sort of clusters of how kids will sometimes present when they've experienced trauma early on. And he's used the analogies of some of these other animals. So there's the tiger. So what we see for some kids who are exposed to threat where they have, uh, often if they're exposed to intimate partner violence or physical abuse, they will upregulate, they will try to fight back, they will become more aggressive, more hypervigilant, these kids are ones we call the tigers, but we often misidentify them as having ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder. Alternatively, when kids are exposed to threat and can't really respond effectively, they have developmental delay. They're very young. They're kind of constantly under threat and there's nothing they can do about it. If you can't fight outside, you actually have to find a way to hide yourself inside. And so these kids shut down and we see these kids presenting in ways that look like depression they are in fact dissociating. They're kind of going away in their own heads in order to survive the moment. And so these are kids we call possums, but we misidentify them sometimes as being depressed or having inattentive ADHD. Then there's kids who are constantly reading the room. Certainly if a parent has substance misuse issues, sometimes when parents have mental illness, the child's constantly looking to sort of read the room and figure out how am I supposed to interact? These are kids that This author is called the chameleons because they can look like, the kids can look like they're manipulators, but in fact, they're just really good at using the clues they have to sort of manage the situations that they're in. And then finally, there are some uh, people who talk about the icebergs. These are kids who have often, like, don't have the supportive caregivers. So they're really on their own trying to manage threat. And they can often seem like pleasers. They can be high achievers, but they don't have anyone to turn to when things get tough. So they're holding themselves really tightly. And if they're challenged or if another stressor comes their way, they can really kind of explode. We call these kids the icebergs. And I think the best example of this is actually Elsa from the movie Frozen. If you haven't seen Frozen, I want to share with you that there's two princesses, and Elsa and Anna both undergo the typical Disney stressor of losing parents. Elsa has many gifts and she can breeze things with her hands and her parents are trying to work with her to deal with this when they are offed as they do in Disney movies. She's trying to hold herself. She's trying to manage herself after she loses them. And at her coronation, she's hit with another stressor and winds up having going from sort of being the goodest of the good girls to externalizing and she sort of freezes the whole town and she becomes a juvenile delinquent on the run from the law and the mo- and the song let it go is about going from dissociating and shutting down to externalizing um so she's the typical iceberg which is appropriate for a movie
0: called frozen so interesting i yeah disney movies are, are there's a lot underlying there right <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah interesting interesting i know i'm i think about I think I'm probably more of a chameleon. I don't know if I'm a manipulator, but I'm sure good at reading the room. I I feel like I've got a radar up a lot. So that kind of sets the stage about how kids respond. And I I loved your description about the tiger because an ODD, which honestly, I wish we could just get rid of that diagnosis because I think it's not, I mean, to me, it just means you're a bad kid and we don't know why. So we're going to just say that you're oppositional. It All it says to me is it's a set of symptoms and behaviors, and then we just throw it into this diagnosis that kind of writes you off, which, you know, and kids that are scared, I mean, wouldn't we all act, you know, badly, maybe? But, well, I
1: I mean, just, just I think what you're pointing out is something that we also think about is people often say, you know, fix this behavior. I can't take this behavior anymore. And the idea, I think, that trauma has really shown us is that behaviors are never out of the blue. Like when I have a problem with my kids at home, I'm not having a yelling behavior. That There's actually what we call a cognitive triangle, right? There's a thought, and that leads to a feeling, and that leads to a behavior, right? So if you want to impact behavior, we actually have to understand the thoughts and the feelings that go into it. And the nice thing about that is that we as humans can control our thoughts. We can change our thoughts. and. That gives us some control and it gives us some power in terms of working with kids who themselves have learned over and over again some negative messaging. If we can help them to change those messages, changing those thoughts can change those emotions and that can change behavior. So another interesting concept we could talk about forever, but I think particularly when we're talking about kids. Who are having challenging behaviors. Let's think about what a behavior
0: really means. And it it isn't just by itself. And I think that's where we often get stuck into ADHD. How many kids? I mean, I think about I mean I practiced for a long time. It's like, how many kids did I miss what was really going on? And then of course, some medication, you use a stimulant. Eh, that may not work. It may totally backfire because it's the wrong diagnosis. So but So kind of knowing all that and how kids respond, you would feel like I'm sort of damned if I've had all this bad stuff happen and I can't find safe people in my environment. What What am I looking at? But I've also heard it been said that your past is not your destiny and that we do have this ability, this kind of flexibility. And then we call that resilience and being able to bounce back. So how is pediatricians and pediatric clinicians, how do we help kids with that? And what do we do to promote it and foster it? Sure, so I love this because this is where we as pediatricians have such an incredible
1: opportunity. There's a resilience researcher named Ann Mastin, and she calls resilience ordinary magic, which I love that term. Right, it, It's happening for many kids most of the time, sort of ordinarily. And when, and when we see it challenge, we realize there's something quite magical about it. That that there must be some strings behind it. She she calls it positive adaptation to or in spite of significant adversities, and she points out that it, it's rooted in the give and take of safe, stable, and nurturing relationships that are continuous over time. And that those are attachments that kids have; those are the the caregiving relationships that kids have. And she says it also happens through the normal, everyday play and experiences and exploration that kids have. So what that means really is that we all this is a concept i think that's really interesting in american culture because american culture has this idea that you figure yourself out but we don't figure ourselves out we are figured out by others who reflect to us who we are and how we can navigate the world right that baby at the very first times the baby cries the caregiver lovingly picks up the baby and says oh you're hungry let me feed you and in each one of those interactions the baby is learning this feeling that one's hunger and people help me with that. And I am worthy of being helped. And there's a way forward when I have this stress. And when that child's a toddler and they're trying to do something, the caregiver says, hey, buddy, looks like you're getting frustrated. Let me help you with that. And the child learns, okay, this one's frustration. There's a way forward from that. I can turn to people. They, these people will help me. And I'm worthy of being helped. Compare that to the child who cries and the caregiver who's challenge says, would you just be quiet? Why are you bothering me all the time? That baby learns this feeling is bothering people or being greedy and nobody helps you and you're not worthy of being helped and when the toddler is frustrated and the caregiver says what are you stupid you can't figure it out that child learns that this feeling is being stupid and there's no way forward so minute by minute what these interactions with caregivers doing is shaping your map of you And your map of the world, right? That's how we negotiate. That's how we navigate. That's how I interact with the world is that somebody convinced me I could be a good pediatrician. And so I bravely move forward with that. And they showed me ways to do that. That's resilience. Those interactions where we show people they are capable, they have resources, they have people to help them. That's that magic of what happens for kids. And we as pediatricians can help caregivers to know and to, to go through that process in in a healthy way, because sometimes caregivers don't, in their own overwhelm and stress, they want to do what's right for the child. They just sometimes don't know how. And that, I think, is what's so exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think part of it, too, is how do you help those kids find those safe, stable, nurturing relationships And I'm thinking about kids in foster care, and I think for a lot, it may not necessarily be in the foster care system. I mean, there are a lot of kids in the system, but also a lot of kids in kinship care. I I came across that a lot. So what surprises you the most about these kids? Because some of them have had just unspeakable horrors that have happened, and yet there's hope there, right? What have you found that surprised you? So
1: I am constantly surprised by the magic of relationships that these kids have, that it is in those healthy relationships, be it in the new foster setting with an extended care network, with a teacher, that kids are looking for any opportunity to develop these skills. They're not tricky. They're not hard to develop, but they require feeling a sense of safety, feeling a sense of that that other person is going to be consistently available to them, that they are going to look at the world with their perspective in mind. And often a few words to that caregiver so that they can understand why this child is behaving the way they are. Just like we misinterpret the behaviors, we misinterpret it as ADHD, we misinterpret that behavior as depression. So too, caregivers and teachers and the people who are in these kids' lives. And those kids are so eager For someone to be there for them and and understand them, look at that world from their perspective. And having a pediatrician who can sort of step in and say, hey, let's think about this together. Let's think about that behavior where this child is clinging to you as not meaning to be annoying, but what are they looking for in that? Or when this child seems to be doing something oppositional, what what happened before that that would have made this child feel threatened in your classroom or in your household? And why might they behave that way if their experience had been what it was? And when those moments happen, the aha that happens for the adult and then the changes that happen for that child, it is quicker than we expect it to be. And it is more remarkable than we expect it to be. And that's what's so wonderful is that plasticity and the power of relationships, I think, are things that in pediatrics, when you sort of, I know we we deal with things very quickly. We deal with a lot of things in a day. And it's often amazing to me to just take a moment and sort of say, where were we before and how far have we come? It's really remarkable.
0: Yeah, it, very, it almost sounds like we're helping the caregivers reinterpret behaviors. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. and I love that. Yeah. Um, the power of relationships. And honestly, I, I, there's so many things that we do with the medical knowledge that we have. We look at the body, we know about disease and stuff. But at the end of the day, I honestly think it's all about how we relate with others. And I have to say, I've been, had a couple of instances where I've had family or somebody interacted with the medical system. And I worry that because there's all these things like imaging and labs, that we sometimes forget to do like a physical exam, which I think, honestly, it's the laying on of hands. And when we don't do that, it kind of feels like we're, we missed something. You know, at a, at a very basic scientific
1: level, what we're doing is we're providing that affiliate support for our patients. We're saying, reach out. I'm here. come." And when we look at our computer or forget to do the exam, the patients who are always frightened or distressed by what they're coming in for, they go to fireflight too, because they can't use affiliate if we don't we we don't demonstrate that we're ready to affiliate with them. So I think understanding that affiliate response, helping caregivers to turn it back on for kids who have learned not to use it, but also for us as providers, it's such a huge understanding tool for us to recognize that I mean our patients need it. We do too. I mean, how many times have you come out of a room where it was a stressful interaction? You've been like, gosh, where's my peeps? I got to tell somebody about how this went. You're saying I need affiliate support so I can calm this stress response. And so do our patients. It's like, sometimes we think about the remedy for burnout and secondary traumatic stress is self-care. And again, I think, yeah, certainly we need to take a step back, but often it's caring for others and being cared for by others. That really is the solution. That's how we are biologically built. I'm sorry, I ramble on, but I, I know one of the most fascinating things that I was recently reading is reading up a paper about the endocrinology of intergenerational trauma and how hormonally we sort of are built and how it, it lends itself to caregiving and how human, growing a human is a challenging endeavor, far more challenging than growing another animal. And we evolved for this to be a group activity. And you need more than one person to be at it together. And, and that's true of medicine too. We need, People to grow families together,
0: and we need each other to do medicine. I think about people that are in very remote regions and having to do all the things, the complicated things, and how exhausting that must be and how hard. But that's where I think I would often come back to these child psychiatry access programs. I mean, I literally think of people that I can call as the holding my hand. So if they're not right there in your vicinity, where can you find that? And I I love that, that there, there are other reasons or other resources, I guess was the word I was thinking about. So share some strategies, if you will, that we can use. And I think you've referred to the three R's, P's and Q's and play. So maybe you can explain that for listeners. Sure. I think sometimes people
1: rightly say, okay, fourth year, I'll have this trauma stuff, but, if, you know, I got 15 minutes with a family. How do you expect me to explain all this? And what am I supposed to do in 15 minutes? I totally agree with you. I got 15 minutes too. And we do complicated physiology all the time. We, and we have quick ways that we help families to, to sort of get some strategies to use at home, try at home, and then call me back if this is not working. What do we need to do? So one of the ones that we kind of put together that I think is useful for most situations, especially when a trauma has occurred or something has sort of disrupted the regulation of a family or a child, is three R's. So kind of like your when you have a sprain, we say rest, ice, compress, and elevate. That's quickly. And I'm not going to see the physiology of a sprain or what, all the things I'm thinking about, but just do these things and let's see what goes. So three R's, once child experiences trauma, stands for reassure is the first R. The second R is routine. And the third R is regulate. So Reassure, this child needs to hear again and again that they are safe, they are safe. When when things have happened that have undermined a child's sense of safety, we need to say it. We need to do it with our touch, hugs. We often need to do it with sort of how we structure a room, maybe a tent in their room that gives them a sense of safety and security, a heavy blanket on their bed, a couple of stuffed animals. So reassuring, letting them know that was a scary time, but everything's okay now, I gotcha. Routines are something that for us, you know, people who do medicine and we do routine, but families, when you undergo a stressor, the routine goes out the window. And for some of our most stressed families, routines may not have been set up in the beginning, but routines take all of the everyday and puts it on autopilot, takes it out of the sort of part of our brain that requires sort of lots of energy and stress. And it also makes the kids understand that things are predictable and understand what's going to happen. The problem with threat and trauma is that it is incredibly unpredictable. So getting back to predictability and routine with their day, with their meals, with their bedtime, incredibly important. And then I think the third one is a little bit bigger and broader, but there's many ways you can go with it, which is regulate. How kids can kind of shut down that stress response and learn to manage it. We can do regulation through relaxation skills, teaching kids things like belly breathing or meditation or prayer, things that help to calm the stress response. Interestingly, many of those things employ not just sort of focusing your mind on one thing, but also strategies that use physiology to calm yourself down. When you're doing deep breathing, you're stimulating the vagal nerve, which has a role in calming. When you're doing mindful eating, you're swallowing. And a suck swallow is one of our most primitive calming reflexes. As a side note, if you're in a stressful meeting with people, say hand out bottles of water because everybody's swallowing will cause them to calm down. So interesting. But what you want to do, giving someone a hug actually stimulates the proprioceptive centers, which are also part of our calming mechanisms, like hugs in inappropriate situations. So relaxation skills. But then regulation is also all about being able to name the feeling and learning some strategies to manage the feeling. Many times kids who've experienced a lot of threat have never learned the words for their feelings, right? Their maps are not have not been created accurately. So what we will see is dysregulated behavior. And we'll say, why are you so angry? But maybe that child who is upset because their mom didn't show up for the visit isn't mad, they're disappointed, or they're fearful that something's happened, or they're feeling jealous that other kids have that opportunity. So helping kids to get some words for their emotion if they're too young for words, thinking about colors, how do you feel today? Do you feel orange today? How do we handle it when you start to feel orange And, and beginning to build those skills? So three R's is a really quick and easy way we can sort of start to build some skills and help families to calm down. You mentioned play and the P's and Q's. One of the things that for pediatricians is sort of uh, obvious is that we play automatically. Most of us went into pediatrics because we are good at playing. But for kids and families who are stressed, play is not automatic. And many families have never learned the skills of play. Um, And play actually is this beautiful opportunity for kids and parents to rewrite the map, right? They can go to a place that doesn't exist and they can create a new reality which changes how that child perceives themselves, how the caregiver perceives themselves, and how that interaction can happen. But we may need to guide families to what play looks like. They may not know that it's face-to-face and it's smiling and interactive. It's using blocks or using cars or using connects or playing a, a game of cards that it I recently talked to a dad who was struggling, having been reunited with his son. And I said, "Do you guys play together?" And he he said, "Yeah, I have a whole room of toys. I can put him in it, and he and I close the gate, and he can be there all the time. But he doesn't like it. Like, he wants to be with you. Do you play with him?" And he said, "Yeah, I put him on the ATV, and we. The kid was three, so I was a little anxious about that. But he that idea of interacting one on one was novel. Was not something that came naturally. So talking about that, and then the Ps and Qs is something as you kind of talk about play. And you could create this, what's called special time, sort of say to the family, hey, let, let the child pick the activity and you pick the time when you're not going to be stressed, when the phone's not going to ring, when you don't have a million things to do. And just for five minutes, whatever that child wants to do, they lead, you follow, go. And then when the timer goes off after five minutes, stop. And then have them come back. And oftentimes they'll say those five minutes work, but then the child is sort of out of control. And that's actually a good thing because the child now is sort of seeing what they want and they're trying to get it from that caregiver more and sort of thinking about how we can extend that. But the other thing is helping caregivers who, again, have not learned play before to to do the Ps, which is to praise and to paraphrase. Wow, I'm so, look at how you're coloring that picture. You're getting The whole family in your picture. I'm so impressed by that. Look, there, I see that picture. Is that me? Oh, that's the dog. I can see that. So praise, paraphrase, point out, and not to use the cues because for families who are stressed, they tend to want to lead and we want to quash that need to lead. We want to quiet criticisms and we want to quit questions, right? So families who are struggling will often say, Why are you doing it that way? Don't do it that way. Do it this way. And we want, again, to let them, let the child lead. So, not the Qs, increase the Ps, put that special time in. And then we're beginning to put some structure around play. Because if we just say, go play, they may not have an idea of what we're talking about. And that begins to build that
0: relationship. And those, I mean, you don't have to have a lot to do that. I love the interactive. And I think so many people want to use like games on their phones and But that's clearly not interacting with the parent at all. I
1: think you can. I mean, so let me give credit. So a lot of the P's and Q's were developed by colleagues who developed Dr. Timmer and her team in PC Care. There's some other great recommendations on their website, which is PC Care. And then there's other ideas for how to spend time together on the ARC website, ARC, Uh, dot org. ARC stands for Attachment Regulation and Competency, and it's a form of therapy for kids who experience trauma. Phones are not all evil, right? We can look at videos together. Like, let's pull Mm. up the cat video. Hey, you show me one of the cat videos that you thought was funny, and then I will show you one that I think is funny. So as long as it's interacting, right? I think that's the, what if you make a TikTok dance video together? Okay. So thinking about ways that we can incorporate what's natural for a family. One time I talked to a family and I said, they said, no, there's nothing we like to do together. We don't do anything that we like to do together. I said, okay, sounds like now not. But think about the last time you enjoyed some time with this child. And they said, maybe when we were singing in church together. Great, okay. So why don't you guys, sing together as you vacuum or sing, make up a silly song at the table or find an opportunity to go to church together and to just go purposely for the singing, right? So taking what a family says is their way and incorporating these tools into that can
0: also be useful. Yeah. I also liked you talking about naming. I did a really nice podcast with a psychologist. Her name's Colleen Cullinan. We called it Naming the Monster About Depression. And first of all, she's like super fun to listen to, but she got like so into what's it look like and what's it do? What's it feel like? What's it smell? I mean, it was the coolest thing. And then I heard Brene Brown, did. she has a program on HBO Max. She wrote a book, Atlas of the Heart. And it's all about talking about labeling feelings and It's just fun to hear people talk about it because some of it we think we take for granted. We think we know like the difference between envy and jealousy. And and I think helping people, I think we just assume that people know what feelings are. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the other things I've heard Brene
1: Brown say is we call them feelings because you feel them in your body. So oftentimes that's another role for us in pediatrics is to say to kids, when when this happens, where do you feel it in your body? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your head? One other kid said, my eyes blink. And I was trying to figure out what that was, but they clearly know that when those strong emotions are coming, they are feeling them. They are called feelings for a reason. And, and again, I think helping people to articulate that is
0: really a, a, a very valuable piece of what we can do. And if you didn't ask, I mean, you would never have guessed that blinking would be the thing for that kid. Absolutely. But but for them to sort of say, yeah, I do this blinking, but I never put that together, that that would be like why they're doing what they're doing or why they're feeling that way. I I have another guest that'll be coming up a little bit later this summer that um, works with writing prescriptions for nature. And sort of, again, play. if Where's the safe place? Can you go outside? And that people do better, even if they can see green out their window, which is pretty amazing. So you talked a little bit about what do we do to support parents and caregivers? How do we help them? Because especially, I, I had some of my foster parents and they have like eight kids and they all have lots of complicated histories. And how do we affiliate with them? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is exactly the
1: answer, though, is that we start off by saying, how are you? What is going on for you? And tell me more about that. Offering that opportunity for them. Parents can't give what they don't have, right? They, You need to be there to be their affiliate support so they then can affiliate for the kids. And we do that with curiosity, with asking open-ended questions. Wow, tell me more about that. Tell me how that felt for you. We do it with respect and we do it with empathy. And I think for pediatricians, those are naturals. Like I think just recognizing that doing the affiliate response is medicine. That is the piece that people need. We actually, we have a foster care program um, where I work and we have a whole, a team of people we call trauma coaches and they are, they were employed so that they could train foster parents to understand trauma. But they see that as really only half their job. The other half their job, they call their hey, which is how are you? Offering foster parents that peer opportunity to just say, hey, this is a tough job. Tell me how it's going. How are you doing? And often it's that opportunity to sort of just sort of say it out loud. It, that is the most critical. And we often... Even in pediatrics, we're not giving people the answers, we're giving them the opportunity to express what they're feeling and they often have the answers if they just have the opportunity to sort of think them through. If we think about what resilience is by Mamston's definition, it happens in those safe, secure, nurturing relationships and adults need those too. And one of the great honors and joys of my job is to be that person in the lives of parents who are doing such incredible work for these kids.
0: I think we underestimate what we can do. I, I, there are times, and it's not like brilliance, but, you know, every once in a while you trip over like, oh, that was a good thing to say. Things that people were afraid to ask, kids with chronic disease that were afraid to ask them, do you ever worry that you're going to die? And, of course, they have. The parent, older foster parents, I remember asking, like, how is this for you? I mean, what are you thinking? What's your future like? And they cry, which of course, then you feel bad about it. But on the other hand, I think it's a relief for them to be able to say and have somebody recognize, this is really hard. Yeah. And I think
1: letting them give voice to that, there's not a wrong emotion. Sometimes we can act wrongly a lot in emotion, but Having the emotion, it usually comes from a place that's real. Like there's a fear or there's an experience that has led to that and letting people voice that and then begin, you can't go past it unless you have the opportunity to get it out and to affiliate around what's frightening you. And then you can move forward sort of saying, I'm in your camp, let's do this together. And and I think the other thing we often forget to do in pediatrics that we do with other diagnoses, but often not with the ones that relate to trauma is provide that positive expectation of recovery, right? If a family comes in with an ear infection, we say, oh, you've been up all night. I'm so sorry. But look, ear infection, we'll either do watchful waiting or, or for some antibiotics. If you're in, a, in 24 hours, this is going to be so much better. Even when it's a serious diagnosis, like a cancer diagnosis, we say, this is pretty serious, but look, we've got these resources. I want you to see this person and we're going to go from here. And sometimes when it's these behavioral or trauma-related problems, sometimes I think from our own sense of being overwhelmed, we forget to provide that positive expectation of recovery and we do need to sort of talk about there's a way forward from here there's steps we can take and we will do it together and there is a there is an answer and i think that that's an important thing
0: for us to not forget as well it's interesting i was listening to a podcast and they were t- on hidden brain which i love i love hidden brain but they were talking about people that kind of flourish are ones that are bad things may have happened but they're not dwelling on them they're able to see that there is hope and and possibilities in front of them, and so, it, and a lot of these kids have had horrible pasts, and it would be easy to get stuck in there, get triggered, but to also say, "Hey, it, you know, there are moments," and that, and I think the other thing we get stuck on is thinking we're supposed to fix things. I mean, there's no way that we can fix what happened, but you can be with someone, which I think just sometimes riding the ride with people is what we can do always. Yeah.
1: I mean, Andy Garner says that. He goes, We're not human doings, we're human beings. So let's be with each other.
0: And, yeah. and so beautiful. I love, I love Andy. Isn't he great? Such a good person. Just to kind of bring us home, what about ourselves? I think I'm going to know the answer based on our conversation, but I, I remember talking to a kid, this was years ago, who had literally been locked in like a cage for a year. I mean, a, and I came out of the room, I sat on the floor and sobbed. I mean, I just was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. And of course, my staff were like, are you okay? Um, but what do we do with that? I mean, how do you manage that? I mean, you're seeing kids that have had such difficult things happen. How do you stay so positive?
1: I, I mean, I think what you did is absolutely right. You recognize that this stressor has happened to this child, but it's also hearing about it has impacted you. And right, it shouldn't. I mean, gosh, the day that those things don't impact us is the day that we probably shouldn't do the work. But, you know, I think that's where, again, I think about this stress response, right? So you, you need to sort of say, sometimes I need the stress to stop for a little while. I need to take that walk in the woods. I need to walk away from it for a little bit so that the stress doesn't keep coming. When I've already been sort of triggered to go into fight or flight or freeze, I need to what's called complete the stress cycle. Like, I may need to run. I may need to sort of take that adrenaline and burn it off. And you could do it through running. You could do it through a good laugh at a funny movie. You could do it through a good cry at a sad movie. You could do it through, you know, connecting with someone creatively and and doing it that way. There's also times where we just need to pull in and finish freezing, like sort of say, okay, I can't do anything more. So today I'm just going to binge on Netflix for today and recognize that may be my freeze response and I'm going to get through it. And then I think what you're pointing out is what your team did for you is they said, wow, what happened? Tell us, how's it going? And they were affiliating and they were saying to you, we're here and let's manage this together. And it is in the telling and that sort of taking it out of your lower brain and processing it through the higher brain that it loses its power to harm you. And that's powerful. And that sort of helps us
0: move on to the next place. So I I think all of those things are important. Yeah, I thought you were going to say affiliate. (laughs) I I knew it was in there. I I participate in the um, SISM events, which are critical incident stress management for hospital staff when there's been an unexpected death, a bad outcome. And what you said is so, it's a fascinating process. But the first part is tell me where you were, what was happening, like the facts, what were you feeling? And it's a very interesting process. It sort of starts with everybody's very heightened and they're telling how awful this thing was, how sad and scared they were. And then they start talking about how they helped each other. It's like, I think of it like a ballet, like everybody knew was a horrible code but everybody was doing what they were supposed to. And then at the end, there's kind of a, it's not necessarily a resolution, but there is a a kind of let, not let down, that's not exactly the word, but there's kind of a, there's a part where people kind of come together and then can move on. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. And and you talking about that, the, I love that the telling loses the power of this, of the event.
1: Yeah. I I mean, if we think about what evidence-based trauma therapy does. It it follows that process. Like uh, For trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, they, they even have an acronym, which starts with some psychoeducation and relaxation and affect management. But then it gets into telling your narrative. And what that does is it doesn't make it so that it never happened, but it takes it out of the lower brain. It allows you to process it in the higher brain. And when you do that, you take it out of the emotion centers and you put it in the logic centers. And now it no longer has that power to continue to harm you the way it did when it was stuck in the lower brain. And you have to be ready to tell that story. But in the retelling,
0: it loses its power to hurt you. Oh, I think that's such a great place to stop. Thank you. I just I just love this. I wish that I had, and probably because it wasn't there, the knowledge that we have now. Man, I wish I'd known this stuff long time ago. I just feel like I could have been such a more effective clinician but you only know what you know, right? And my guess is that you were quite effective anyway. I, I think
1: some of what we're doing is we're giving names to some of the things that people already know to do. And and I think it helps. Again, it helps to name the emotion. It also helps to name what we know. And I think that's my other message for people is I think most people intuitively know this and that we're just sort of putting some structure around things that people yeah. already know to
0: do. Well, and I think it's having it explained, uh, psychoeducation for ourselves, having it explained like, Oh, like back to the constipation. Oh, that makes sense. And if you could share that with a parent, well, that would make total sense. So what I'd love to finish up with is if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, that chief resident, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I think the advice I would give myself is that not everything will get figured out at once and that life is long. And that we sometimes think when we're young residents that, there's only one way. There's only one time. But, you know, for everything, there's a season and it, it, it evolves. And I think that's been the joy of this work is to see that it has evolved and that I didn't know what I didn't know. And that was OK. Yeah. Oh, well, that's
0: a gift. <laughs> <laughs> I hope people heard that. That was special. Listen, thank you so much. And, and thank you for being out there in the world doing this stuff. I, it is so helpful. And I think it makes, to me, it's kind of a relief. Like, oh, I could just be with this patient. I don't have to be like, know everything. Just me being here with them, laying on of hands, asking if they're okay. I can make a huge impact. Who knew?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's the amazing joy of our work. Absolutely.
0: Ordinary magic. Ordinary magic.
1: Yeah. Thank you,
0: Heather. And have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too. Take care. I love this conversation so much, and Heather is just such a kind and compassionate clinician. That is such a gift to the patients that she sees. So here are my takeaways. Number one, in a word, the key to resilience following trauma is affiliate. In other words, our hope is in each other. And I love this so much. Number two, The ACEs study laid the groundwork for the science of toxic stress, epigenetics, and resilience. ACEs was the missing piece of information, the big aha. Number three, the science that followed, that of the stress and toxic stress response, fight, flight, freeze, explained many behaviors and outcomes. Why those that had been traumatized looked alike, although they were not at all related. So things like increased incidence of heart disease, substance use disorders, mental health disorders, cancer, etc. Number four, we evolved for affiliation. We have big brains and each other. That helps us survive. Number five, social salience is the ability of our brains to sort out which affiliations are safe, stable, and nurturing. And this is key to our survival. Number six. When thinking about toxic stress and the stress response, you can kind of think about it with some analogies. So, the tiger might present growling and fierce with a lot of externalizing behaviors, often diagnosed as ADHD or ODD, my least favorite diagnosis of all time. The possum, who hides inside themselves and and can look like depression. The chameleon, who reads the room and tries to adapt, and might look like they're manipulating the situation. And finally, the icebergs, the people-pleasers that hold tightly and then, as she really described nicely, let it go. Think Elsa. Number seven. Your past is not your identity and does not predict your future. Find the ordinary magic. Positive adaptation allows us to bounce back and provide positive expectation of recovery. It's what we can offer. Number eight, many children who have been traumatized internalize that they are not worthy of being helped and that their experiences shape their own map and the map of the world. What we can offer is helping caregivers reinterpret behaviors and name feelings. Number nine. So here are some of the strategies. These are things you might already do. So first of all, the three R's. Reassure you are safe. Routine. Create predictability out of chaos. And regulate. Shut down stress. Things like breathing. Anything that triggers the vagus nerve. Number 10. The P's. Praise, paraphrase, point out, and play. And some of these things may not be automatic for caregivers, but that's something that we can coach and demonstrate. Number 11, the cues, those things to avoid. Be quiet. Quit doing that. Quashing the behaviors and quashing play and dreams. Number 12, to support our parents and caregivers, we can do something simple. She called it, hey, how are you? Tell me more. You can be the safe, stable, nurturing relationship for your families. Number 13, for ourselves. Stop and take a breath. Affiliate with others, your staff, your partners, your family, your friends, and tell stories. It loses its power when you tell the narrative. I thought that was really critical. And then... Do things to help blow off the steam and let go by doing physical things like running, crying, laughing, maybe even binging Netflix. And number 14. In a word, it's all about relationship. Affiliate. It's good medicine. Be and seek safe, stable, nurturing relationships. Thank you so much for being those safe folks. and. We underestimate the power of our being with our families and our patients because we have a lot of power in being able to model for others how we can really reinterpret the world for children and help the parents see what might promote their children's success and joy. Have a great day, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.